Thank you, worship team. Oh. Aren't we blessed? Isn't that a Christian word, blessed? Aren't we happy, fortunate? Uh, that's the kind of thing it means, isn't it? I'm going to open this morning in Psalm 37. If you've got a scripture, Bible in front of you, tablet, whatever, you can have a look. Psalm 37 will have it come up on the screen for you as well. What I want to talk about delight, and not the angel delight that uh, you, you give your children, but talking about delighting ourselves in the Lord. Who is your delight? What delights you? What makes you happy? Um, maybe many things make you happy, or maybe you're the opposite, that nothing seems to delight you at all. But here we go, Psalm 37. He says this, Do not worry because of evildoers, nor be anxious, envious, sorry, towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. But trust, which means rely on, have confidence in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires and petitions of your heart or your innermost being. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him also, and he will do it. He will make your righteousness or your pursuit of right standing with God like the light and your judgment like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him and entrust yourself to him. Do not fret, do not whine or agonize because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and abandon wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For those who do evil will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Reading a psalm like this, we can see that there's lots of instructions, many instructions in this psalm, as well as promises. And I think as we meditate, perhaps like they did in ancient times, meditate on something like this, we can see that it has great value for us today. I think there's secrets in here, secrets to our way of being, that we can learn to transpose these promises, these instructions, into our times today. Obviously, sometimes I, or often, I stand up here and I make certain assumptions. And we need to be careful when we preach and teach that these assumptions are not those, all those that are listening, maybe those who are watching online. Um, they may not share the same faith as us. And certainly this is the case, and we, we do encounter many different worldviews as we go about our day. But when we say God, or the Lord, or Yahweh, or whichever word we choose to use, when we say God, what we think about, or what immediately comes to our mind, could be very different from the person next to us. We can think that some have that same idea. Or perhaps there's an experience that we've had that makes us think in a certain way. And we as Christians, we value the Scripture. We value it as ancient wisdom. We value it as it reveals something to us about the nature and character of God. But as Christians, 
I, I think we need to be very Christ-centric when we're reading Scripture. We're reading the, what we call the Old Testament, what Jesus would have called Scripture, and certainly the apostles would have called it Scripture. It's old not as in it's irrelevant, but it's old in comparison to the New Testament, if that makes sense. So Scripture, I like uh, the, the way of calling it Scripture rather than the Old Testament. But we view Scripture very much Christ-centric with the knowledge of what Christ has done. And David, who wrote this psalm, actually, I think, had a little bit of foresight into a new covenant relationship. Obviously, he wasn't in the new covenant because that didn't come about until Christ. But he had a little foresight, a little vision. And David wrote this psalm, and he had the heart of a worshiper. He had a heart for the Lord. And Jesus would come later and say to people, that you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And I know Jesus doesn't want us just to pay lip service to God, but he wants us in our hearts. He wants our uh, innermost being, our delight to be in him. And David, as a worshiper, and for the most part, followed God. Uh, we do know that several things that he did um, may have knocked him out of contention of someone you can call great. Um, but I think he had some humility and some repentance about him, which, which makes me think there's hope for me. Because I know I'm not going to do everything right, but if I have the right heart attitude, I have the right repentant attitude, I have the humility before God, then maybe there's a chance for me too. And today, with all our, with all our knowledge and that we have at our fingertips and... Uh, we don't want to just seek knowledge of God for the sake of it. We really want to gain some wisdom and understanding on how we can put some of this knowledge into practice today. And when we hear the word God, are we thinking uh, something that someone else has told us, something about our own upbringing or our experience? Perhaps you were forced to go to church. Perhaps you have an idea that God is somehow coercing you into, uh, and he's there with his attendance checklist. And just making sure, right, okay, he hasn't been for a little while. Hmm, let's have a look at that. You know, whatever your view of God. But what comes to our minds immediately when we hear the word God perhaps says more about us than it does say about God himself. And our reading of Scripture and our doctrine, doctrinal position is very much affected by maybe the image that we have of God in our minds and uh, where we're coming from, if that makes sense. And, you know, some Eastern religions and philosophers and scientists, they, they claim about God that, one, he could be uh, non-existent, he could be absent, could be dead, especially in relation to the universe and creation. But as Christians, and, and some other faiths, I, I believe, have a belief in God's absolute presence and that God is looking to embrace everything. And the proclamation that God is in Christ and is indeed present in the universe makes God relatable to us. So God is divine, supernatural, supreme, and God is other, as in he's certainly different to us. But God is the creator, but he is wholly other to creation. And therefore, there needs to be some kind of balance between the otherness of God the simplicity, and the imminence of God. And a common reaction to this 
idea of the divine complete otherness implies that somehow God is too far, too uh, unknowable, out of our reach, maybe absent and unknowable, or maybe some kind of agnostic belief that, you know, there's not possible to know or not to know whether there's a God, and some people just hedge their bets. Or if you've got a deism kind of belief, which believes there's a God, but that God is unknowable, and we're not able to confirm the presence of God. But there is a belief that he's there. Or maybe he was there at the beginning, but now he's kind of left us to it. And discussions about God's absence and presence becomes complicated because of the imperfect human language that is incapable of explaining God's ontological distinction. But I believe that what we know about God or what we need to know about originate in Scripture and then, of course, flow out of that into our experience. And the word the psalm, psalmist David used for God here is, is Yahweh, which when literally translated is I am. And this can often in Scripture be followed by a descriptive of Yahweh's interactive characteristics with us, as in I am the Lord who heals, I am the Lord who saves, I am the Lord who provides. And these additions to the name of Yahweh often describe how God interacts with us. Certainly the Jewish and Hebrew foundation would have been that not just that God is distant, but that God is keen and active and revealing himself through his characteristics to us. The I am kind of suggests or means that I am now, I have always been, and I always will be. I will be what I will be. But Psalm 37 here assumes our belief, not only in the otherness and distinction of God, but yet also that David has some kind of inside track to the key to interacting with that God. And the implication for David, and, and I believe the implication for us today, is that God is somehow present and active, and that we can focus our delight and derive our pleasure from God. Psalm 37, you thought I'd forgotten about it. First point I want to mention is trust in the Lord. That word trust is a kind of bold confidence, a secureness, but trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on God's faithfulness. That picture of feeding I imagine for David is these herds of sheep or goats. And, and you know about a goat or a sheep, if you've seen one, they're just always feeding. They never seem to get full. They will graze and graze and graze. And I suppose if, only, if you only ate grass, uh, you'd probably have to graze and graze and graze just to get enough nutrition. That dwell in the land. The land is good. The land in Israel, oh, that's a study for another day. Delight yourself. That word delight. If you look it up in the Hebrew, 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 it means to be soft and dainty, or it means to be delicate. doesn't sound like the word delight, does it? Commit your way to the Lord. I love the word commit. It, it means roll with it. Uh, you ever want to just, just, just commit yourself? You're at the top of the hill and you want to get down? Just commit. Just roll with it. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still. Well, of course, that means to hold still, to quiet self, to rest, to be silent. Cease from anger and fret. Isn't that a good bit of advice? Stop being angry or burning. That word anger is kind of, there's a heat with that anger. 
And, uh, you know, we said that someone's red with anger. You know, that in Hebrew, um, the, the word anger is literally to burn, uh, to grieve or to be waxed hot, to be incensed. So when Moses wrote something like, God is slow to anger, um, it literally implies in a Hebrew idiom that God's nostrils do not burn quickly. Or that word burn can be translated long. So God has a long nose. It's a long, cold nose. You know, God's not burning with anger. His nostrils aren't breathing fire, you know, that kind of. We have that same kind of idiom today, don't we? And the last one I will look at is wait upon the Lord. The, the Hebrew word for wait, there's several of those. This one kind of pictures ancient rope making. Uh, so while you're waiting, it's not um, kind of a passive thing. But uh, the way they make a rope is they get hundreds of strands of fabric and uh, they weave them together. They bind them tightly in a rope and it's not easily broken. That's still kind of how we make rope today. So waiting on the Lord is kind of rope making. It's, uh, there's a binding. It's not a sitting back patiently, twiddling our thumbs. The kind of waiting is the process of binding ourselves to God. And the more we bind ourselves to God, the stronger that we become. That's why waiting on the Lord brings strength, because you're, you're kind of binding yourself to him. But what I want to bring out this morning is this word delight. What delights us? What do we spend our time doing? Because where we spend our time often shows where our affections lie. Someone, spelt, someone said love is spelt T-I-M-E. And Jesus said where our treasure is, there also is our heart. So the topic of delighting ourselves or what delights us, you know, for some the idea that anything in this world can be a delight is a tough one, especially when difficult times are ahead. Maybe it seems too far-fetched that you could walk in a, a mindset of delighting, that you could actually derive pleasure from life or derive pleasure from your relationship with God. And I know on the other scale, some people seem much too much delighted in themselves. Um, but here the psalm suggests, don't be delighted in yourselves. Don't be too overpleased with yourselves, but delight yourself in the Lord. The Hebrew word is onag, that word delight, that, as I said, means to be delicate. And it carries the idea of kind of a flexibility or a sensitivity. So when I'm delighting in the Lord my, in, in my heart, my innermost being, I'm kind of being sensitive to, towards God, flexible towards God, and, and dependent upon God. And I, I want God to be the one where I get my pleasure so I'm soft and I'm open and I'm relying on Him. And Him, or God, I derive my greatest of pleasure. What gives us pleasure? What goes beyond mere satisfaction? The psalmist calls ourselves to delight ourselves. That delight, that word is also an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. The verb is, is a command. It's not a helpful suggestion. It's a command that says we strive to be delicate before the Lord. Doesn't that sound a little bit difficult to understand? But it's a, you must be delicate in your delighting with the Lord. And it's not an isolated command in Scripture. We see forth um, in 
everyday believers throughout Scripture were showing their delight and trust in the Lord. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You show me the path of life. In your presence there is joy or fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures for every more. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The Apostle states that he's willing to give up everything so that he may know Christ Jesus, delighting in the Lord. For Paul, it was this idea that this is going to cost me, but it's really, really worth it. My second point is, what is our heart's desire? Our heart's desire is the Lord. The second part of this delight yourself in the Lord is that God will give you the desires of your heart. And in Hebrew thought, the, the heart was the primary seat of our innermost being, from the very fabric of your being, the source of your will. And the psalmist here is saying and tells us that honoring and delighting in the Lord is from our innermost being, from the depths of our soul, if you like, or from our heart. And God is graciously giving us his love, which he pours out into our innermost being, that we in turn can return our delight in him. Now, think carefully here. If we are delighting ourselves in God, then what are the desires of our heart? If we're relying upon God, deriving our primary pleasure from God, then God is the desire of our heart. And the promise here then reads differently. It's not that you delight in the Lord and the Lord's going to give you a new Ferrari or he's going to give you uh, worldly things that will take the place and you'll put in place of God. If you're desiring God and God is giving you the desires of your heart, what is it that God's giving you? He's giving you himself. The greatest blessing that we can ever receive is to bask in the glory of God. Jesus said, ultimately, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, John 17, verse 3. And the greatest blessing imaginable is for God's face to shine upon us, the old priestly blessing in Numbers 6. God promises that when we delight in him, when we rely on him, when we take our pleasure in the Lord, that God will give us the Spirit to us. And the Apostle Paul was willing to give up everything for the sake of the knowledge of the glory, the, the, the glory and the knowledge of Jesus Christ himself. Does this, does this describe us? Does our delight in the Lord? May our prayer be that we set our affections upon the Lord first and foremost. May we desire God more than anything else. May we seek earnestly. May we seek after the Lord. May we count all things lost for the sake of knowing God. May we delight ourselves in the Lord and may God give us the desires of our heart. I'm going to close where I began. Delighting ourselves in the Lord rather than being delighted in ourselves. That could only be, could perhaps be the first step. Getting to know God in Christ, getting to know God through Scripture is a good place to start. And then by trusting in the Lord, God's Spirit takes action and we begin to experience and interact with this God. See, this God is distinct. God is holy other to, he's a creator. But this holy other creator enters into a loving relationship with 
creation. And the notion of relation to God and the holy otherness of God has got to be parallel. God's presence expresses his nearness, his close presence into the world, which he so loved that he gave his only son. Augustine, one of the church fathers from the fourth century, he said this, God is more intimately present to me than my innermost being and the highest peak of my spirit. Similarly, Aquinas in the third century describes God's presence as intimate, an innermost presence in all things at all times. And it's been said that all of creation continues to experience the divine goodness and presence of God, which sustains and guides it towards its ultimate process. I know to some, to speak of God being present with us is a mystery. That God could be personal. That God could be here amongst us. That God is someone whom we can show our affection to, our delight. That God is for us. He's with us. Even in the difficult times when we even struggle and feel like God is absent somehow. God initiates spiritual, intimate encounters with humanity through his grace. His grace so freely given. God, this holy other being, supernatural beyond our understanding, yet God wants to dwell with us. He wants to make his presence felt and known to you. And it begins, doesn't it, with a good foundation knowledge of God and coupled with our experience of his divine presence that cultivates this creator-creation relationship. And while God is transcendent, supernatural, and otherness of God, that retains the aspect of our awe and our wonder as we behold that this amazing God will choose to dwell with us mere human beings. Additionally, the incarnation of God in Christ provides us with this understanding that God remains connected with humanity in order for us to experience and respond to divine. This places, the God, this places God and humanity in that solidarity, inseparable affection, unity of love, along with our ethical understandings and our ontological relationships. Even though this seems unequal, God and me. Yet God is loving and kind. He's real. He wants that relationship with his creation. The creator present with creation in communion with Christ and the Holy Spirit. Having established that God is other, nothing like we could ever describe. God by his grace is present. So my question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to the grace of God? How do we respond? Is it with fear? Is it with doubt? I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's with faith. David knew this, that relationship is the key. David's suggestion was to delight in the Lord, have that softness of heart. His other idea was us to be feeding on God's faithfulness. And to commit our way, to roll with it, to trust in God. That we don't need to be anxious or worrying or fret because of what's evil going on around us. 
but we can somehow, in the midst of that, experience some stillness. And we can wait. We can bind ourselves up with him. God, yes, is other, but God is someone who we can bind ourselves to, this almighty supreme being who by his grace, by his choice, and by our faith, reacts with us. What will you do with this almighty supreme being? Will you open up your heart? Will you be tender? Will you be delicate? We say, God, take your place. Take your position in me. Let my delight, let my pleasure be in you. Open up my heart to welcome your spirit. Jesus said, if, you, if we obey your commands and we open ourselves up to you, you'll come and make your home in us. Make your home in us today. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.